Well, good morning to you uh, as we start this series kind of in the book of Judges. Uh, in order to get us thinking about us, I want you to think uh, about this question. Uh, try, sorry, kids. Yeah, you're dismissed. Off you go. So we're talking about authority, and they're obeying. Good authority. Well done, children. Good. Yeah. So uh, think about, as we're thinking about authority, I just used that word. That word, maybe when I say that word, maybe even sounds a little off to you. The word authority maybe even sounds a little negative to you. And so when we actually take some time to think about the ways uh, our distrust of authority has come, um, I wonder if you could identify one segment of our societal structure that has not in recent years been characterized by some abuse of authority. So just think about this. We could just walk through this, right? So if we were to begin with, say, our government, we can think about how our governments, from congressmen to senators to presidents, have been caught up in scandal. We we can think about educational realms where superintendents and teachers caught in scandal. Uh, We can think about uh, other places like the rule of law, where judges and policemen have abused their authority. Even down to the entertainment realm with actors and directors and producers and talk show hosts abusing their authority, comedians abusing their authority. Even down to news services, uh, things like Facebook, Apple, Google, countless newspapers have used their voice to promote their own good and diminish the truth of things. And of course, how can we forget just this past week uh, in the realm of sports when we think about Larry Nasser, the USA gymnast coach that was uh, put in jail for years of abusive Uh, relationships, sexual abuse with those of whom he uh, was coaching. And even the religious realm, right? How can we deny that? Pastors and priests using their authority for their own good to get, you know, females or women or men or or money or power, whatever the case may be, using that power for ill, for bad. And of course, some of you can think about your own lives, right? Personal lives, friends, neighbors, parents, bosses that have used their authority for bad. And so in the last 50 to 60 years, this has, been a, this has been a problem, by the way, all the way back, as we will see. But in particular, in the last 50 to 60 years, we've seen a complete, a complete lack of trust in authority. I was trying to think about why is it we have so much lack of trust in authority? Where did that come from? Where did this whole question authority ideology come from? And of course, when you list out all those things that I just said, right, where we begin to understand why we have such a lack of of trust in authority. It begins to make sense to us why. Even some of you maybe that are here for the first time this morning, uh, and you see me here, you don't know me, uh, but you see me up here as a pastor opening up the Bible saying this is true, this is not true. Even you are sort of suspicious of me. And I understand that. I understand because we've seen so many abuses of it. And so uh, what we have come to see is that because of the abuses of power, Uh, that have kind of seeped its way through every single authority structure, we've begun to trust one thing. There's only really one thing that really remains that we still have trust in. And that's ourselves. We trust ourselves. We trust our own read of things. We trust our own uh, persons as authority. The one place that most people do not have suspicion in is in themselves and their own read of things. So we, we can't hardly trust anything else anymore. And so we'll just trust ourselves and what we think or feel. And the question comes as a result of that. What happens to a society when self is seen as supreme? What happens when a people have no guide but themselves are left and are left to do whatever is right in their own eyes? Well, friends, that is the question that the book of Judges in the Bible is seeking to answer. 
that question. What happens to a people when they do what is right in their own eyes, rejecting authority or having no authority but themselves? And what we're going to find as we walk through this book of Judges is it doesn't turn out good. It doesn't turn out good at all. We need to see that we need a good authority outside of ourselves. And so I counted a great providence of God that he would lead us to study this passage, the book of Judges, uh, in this season uh, for the next about four months. Now, you're going to find as we walk through this book, it's a tough read. It's a tough read. It's full of all kinds of things that make us uncomfortable. It's got stories of rape. It's got stories of civil war, things like that. But if what Joey said a couple weeks ago is true, namely that Jesus trusted the word and that all of it is good, we can know that there's something good for us in it, uh, in God's word. We should trust it. But before we get into Judges, we need to understand the context of Judges, right? Judges just doesn't appear out of nowhere. The Bible is very specifically laid out. Many people don't know that, don't think about that. The Bible is specifically laid out. Uh, But in the book of Judges, what it does is it documents God's people, the Israelites, moving into the land of promise. And it documents sort of how that goes. Uh, But we can't understand what happens in the book of Judges without understanding what came before it. We have to understand where Israel came from and where, what their mission was, and where the Lord was in it all. And so for that reason, this morning we're going to take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. So go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. And I chose that passage. I chose Deuteronomy 7 because I think in that one chapter we see the expectations that the Lord has of the Israelites. And we're going to see, it's sort of a, uh, a kind of a way to understand all the failures of the book of Judges and the Israelites therein. And so Deuteronomy is the, as I mentioned, the fifth book of, in the Bible. It is sometimes referred to, those first five books are referred to as one book called the Pentateuch. Uh, it is sometimes called the Torah or the Law, those first five books. Deuteronomy again comes at the last end, or the tail end of that. And Deuteronomy is great because it serves as a kind of review for everything that came before it. If you understand Deuteronomy, you'll get a lot, you'll understand a lot of what came before it, and you'll understand a lot of what comes after it. So Deuteronomy is reviewing everything before, preparing for what comes ahead, and most of what's in Deuteronomy is the story of Moses, who was uh, uh, the Israelites' leader, who's kind of telling them and documenting what they need to be doing when they go into the land of promise. Things to remember, things to be warned of, and uh, Moses is doing this because Moses himself is not going into the land himself. He's going to entrust that to Joshua, his successor. We'll take a look at him next week to prepare us for judges. So Moses is readying these people to go into the land so that they would understand what they are supposed to be doing, what they're supposed to not be doing for the glory of God and the good of themselves. And so in Deuteronomy 7, we'll see three things this morning, three things, the justice of God, the holy love of God, and then thirdly, the call to then trust God's grace. With that, let's read Deuteronomy 7. One to five. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. 
You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with him. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. First point, justice of God. We see the justice of God here. Uh, when you read, read verse 2, I'm sure all of you are like me. right? You read that. Devote them to complete destruction. Right? That, when you read that, you probably squirmed a little bit in your chair. Sort of, ew, feel bad that Nathan has to preach this passage. right? No, don't feel bad for me. This is God's good word. It's difficult for us, but we, we've, got an, we've got an opportunity here, right? We could even just take these passages and just sort of act like they don't exist. You know, because there's many people that read passages like this and they call this the, quote, God of the Old Testament as though he's different from the God of the New Testament because he's devoting people to destruction. We can take passages like this and just act like they're not there. Just never preach them, never think about them. Or we can be consistent with our confession that all of God's word is always good for us and look at it and investigate it. And of course, we're going to do the latter. We're going to dive into this and see that it is, in in fact, good. But there's no way of getting around what's being said right here. God is calling for the complete destruction of these peoples. Some scholars have tried to sort of dismiss things from time to time, sort of make it sound not as bad as it may sound, but very few people are buying that argument, and as well they shouldn't. The call is clear. Wipe these people out. That's what it says. That's what's going on. And that then results in the next question, doesn't it? Well, is God calling for genocide? Many people would say that's exactly what's going on. God is calling for genocide. Many people accuse God of being genocidal, but that is not the case, guys. This is not genocide. Genocide's motive is racial, ethnic, or national hatred. And while I understand why some would think that that that's what God is commanding, namely that he's saying, get these nations out and bring in this nation, my nation. I understand that while they've seen that, that is not what's going on. I'll give you a couple reasons why. First, even in the Old Testament, you'll find this in the Pentateuch, in the book of Leviticus, God is welcoming other nations in. Glad to have other nations that are not his nation come in. And then the second reason is, is God even condemns Israel, as you'll see. God even condemns Israel. I'll give you one, a couple anecdotes that prove this. So Joshua 2 uh, is the story of a girl by the name of Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute. She's of one of these nations that are there that the Israelites are coming in to drive out. And Rahab is saved by her faith in the Lord. She's brought in to be part of that kingdom, as it were, through her faith. So we see that. And then on the opposite side, we look in Joshua chapter 7, and there's a story of a guy named Achan. Achan's an Israelite. And he disobeys the Lord and is given to the condemnation of God himself. So we find an Israelite being condemned in a sort of one of these folks, these Canaanites being brought in. So this is not genocidal. What's happening here, folks, is morality. God is not, his motive is not genocidal. His motive is moral. It's not genocidal, it's moral. You'll see in a moment that God does not love Israel because they're big or strong or morally superior to these nations. He makes clear that these guys, these Israelites, have done nothing to deserve their position. Israel has chosen this task, or Israel has been chosen for this task by God in order to display the ever-present reality of God's justice. 
Israel has been chosen for this task by God's grace in order to display the ever-present reality of God's justice on the earth. So folks, these Canaanites that's being referenced here that are being driven out, these are morally depraved people. The story often goes that when Israel comes into the land, that they're just coming in disturbing and otherwise peaceful people, sort of minding their own business. That is not the case, friends. The reality is these were wicked people. Let me point you to one verse. I could give you others, but let me point you to one. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, a little while after where we're at. Deuteronomy 12, 31 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every, underline that word, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they, he's referencing these nations, they have done for their gods. And then God gives, he lists one example. For they have even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their God. That's, again, one example of what these people are like. The Lord says that they do every abominable. The word there is disgusting. Every disgusting thing that the Lord hates. They've done it all. Who knows what else these Canaanites, these Amorites, these Girgashites have done? Who knows what else? So clearly the Canaanites, the Amorites, these guys are not innocent people. Nor are these morally neutral people. Nor are these people just a little bit off. These are wicked people. God is bringing his judgment upon them for their depravity. And he's using the Israelites as the arm of that judgment. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You said, okay, well, maybe that's true, Nathan. I I give you that, right? Let's say these people are morally wicked people. It still bothers me that God would do something like this, that God would be just and sort of do this sort of thing. And so the first thing I would say to that is, listen, I get that reaction. I understand that reaction. And so one of the first things I would want us to see is that I don't think that God wants us to feel good about the need for this destruction. Any more than we might feel good about the need to have surgery to remove a tumor. We rejoice in the removal of the tumor, right? But we're not happy about the fact that surgery has to happen. So in the same way, that's what we see of God. If we were looking at Ezekiel 18.23. Ezekiel 18.23, God makes crystal clear He does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. He does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. So it is fine, even right and good for us to not like the fact that this has to happen. But it wouldn't be good for us to not like the fact that God judges. It's not okay if we think that we don't like the fact that God judges. We need to be okay with God judging. We should rejoice that God is a God of justice. Guys, this is a critical point. So listen to me. This is a critical point that is almost entirely forgotten in our day. The proper application of justice is the true expression of love. The proper application of justice is the true expression of love. God's justice is the expression of His love. So for Him to be love, He must be just. Which means he must penalize, rightly penalize the guilty. If he were to not administer his justice, he could not be said to be love. Indifference or so. Indifference is the opposite of love. I think we often forget that. We often say that the opposite of love is hate, but it's not. There's something deeper than hate. Indifference. Just not caring. Not being bothered. So I don't love my sons by letting them talk to their mother the way that they please. That's not loving. I don't just say, you know, however you want to talk to your mom, just go right ahead. That's not loving. 
Right? Well, the way that I love my sons and the way that I love my wife is I instruct them. This is how you talk to her. This is how you don't talk to her. And when they disobey what they ought to have been done, right, they receive justice. Right? They go to their room or whatever the case may be. And by doing that, I then love my wife. Right? That's what we understand. That's true love, bringing justice upon a wrong. So that's what we have to understand. We even see, again, another uh, illustration of how justice is, in fact, loving. From our own uh, week, this past week, I referenced it a moment ago. The USA gymnast coach this past week was given life in prison for sexual abuse. And everybody in this room, I'm assuming that this would be the case. I know it is for I'm assuming everybody in the room knows that was a good thing. They did the right thing by putting him in prison for up to 145 years. That was right what they did. It was right what they did. It was, we would agree even that that penalty was righteous, that it was just. It would have been unloving, wouldn't it? This is to show the opposite. It would have been unloving to say, ah, no big deal, whatever, do whatever you want to do. If that's what you do, that's fine. That would be the most unloving thing to do, right? to be indifferent. Something had to be done. Justice had to be administered. And so even though we are in increasingly confused culture when it comes to love, we still agree that sending that coach to jail was the right thing to do. The judge loved those gymnasts by administering justice to the guilty coach. And the reason it was love was because it gave the proper penalty to the crime that was committed. And that's what justice is, and that's what love does. Justice is the expression of love. You lose justice, friends, you lose love. They go together. But if you maintain proper justice, you promote true love. Which brings us back to the text here in Deuteronomy 7. Just as the judge gave the coach life in prison, God is expressing his love by his administering the proper penalty to the Canaanites. Is it harsh? Sure it is. But is the penalty uh, accurate? Does the penalty fit the crime? It does. See, these Canaanites were not only morally abusive people, they were passionately devoted to a false god to the point of sacrificing their children. And so therefore they lied about the God of the universe and what he is and what he commands. And so the punishment must fit the crime. If the love of God is going to advance, he must punish those that are lying about that love and attacking that love through their false worship. And by the way, friends, if you are somehow uh, opposed to having a category uh, of a God that loves and a God that has a God of justice, if you think that those two things don't go together and you don't want to say that they do, you have also two other problems that are introduced for you one you lose the reality of hell which is something jesus talked a lot about and two most notably if you lose this idea of justice and love you lose the glory of the cross of christ you lose that very clearly this is the place on the cross where christ willingly takes the punishment for sin on himself that's what makes it so beautiful on himself so that those who believe might be raised to life and so for god to be Love, he must administer his justice. Otherwise, he cannot be said to be love and you lose the gospel as a result. And so that's what God is doing in driving these Canaanites out. He's using the Israelites to administer the justice that they deserved in order to promote his holy love, in order to promote what is true life. And so one point of application for us today, one point of application for us, we need to understand, beloved, we need to understand that sin against God demands a severe penalty. We tend to 
emphasize the love of God and the grace of God to the neglect of the severity of the justice of God. And why is it we do that? Because I think we lose sight of the holiness of God. We lose sight of the holiness of God. Sin is serious, guys. And, and one of the ways in which we, I think we, we, we tend to mitigate our sin is because we lose sight of the greatness of God, the holiness of God. When we read the Bible, when people think they see God, they think they're going to die on the spot. And we sort of treat God like he's some flower in a car or something. He's serious. He's high. He's lifted up. So we tend to make God sort of like grandma or grandpa there at Christmas, sort of sitting in the corner. You know, like maybe they want things to happen a certain way, but they're sort of, ah, whatever. That's not the way God is. God is love. He is gracious. He is merciful. But guys, God is also full of justice because he's holy. Sin demands a severe penalty, all of it. And so that gives us, doesn't it, a greater appreciation for the gospel, doesn't it? Gives us a greater appreciation for what Christ accomplished on the cross. I mean, we understand, Jesus understood, that he drank the cup of God's wrath. He took the punishment. So we all, all of us, myself included, we all deserve what the Canaanites got. And yet God showed us that believe grace. He showed us grace. And so as the recipients of God's grace in love, we should recapture the need to live a holy life by learning to hate our sin as God hates sin. We've got to stop asking this question, how far is too far? We've got to start answering the question, how can I love God and neighbor better? That's a better question. Instead of asking, how far can I go? We've got to recapture the seriousness of sin by saying, how can I love God and neighbor better? God, sin is serious to God. We must take it seriously as well. So we need to gouge out hand, cut out or cut off hand or gouge out eye. We need to throw that cell phone away. It's causing problems. Church family, it's true. We are under grace, as Paul says. We are not under the law. That's true. But we are still called to hate sin and love obedience as God does. We cannot turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin. We've got to take it seriously as God does. And let me speak to you, friend, that is not trusting in Christ. If you're here this morning not trusting in Christ, you should know, friend, that the fate of the Canaanites is your fate as well. No, you will not be struck by some army of God. But your sin has a penalty and you will have to pay it in an eternal hell apart from the presence of God. You should let that, that idea hit you heavily. Your fate is the fate of the Canaanites. And I realize that when I say that your fate is an eternal hell, that sounds very judgmental, and it is. But friend, you should know this is not my assessment. This is God's assessment of you. This is his word, not mine. God's justice is demanded to protect and to promote his love. As we've seen, for God to be loved, he must punish those that lie about his love. And therefore, if you do not trust Christ to pay the penalty for your sins, then as John 3.36 makes so clear, then you are left to bear that penalty yourself apart from him in hell. And I realize that some of you might say, all right, well, Nathan, that may be true, but I'm going to worry about that tomorrow. I'm going to keep working through that. And we should. We, on the one hand, we don't want to superficially have people come to faith in Christ. But at the same time, you should know, friend, tomorrow is not promised for you. You may not have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years to work through this. The reality is, friend, 
Life is short and hell is long. But even more than that, friend, God is good. God is good. His ways, His love are the way to true life. To true life. Trust Christ today. The invitation is there for you to be rescued from that punishment. Trust Him and live for Him for the rest of your life. Enjoying His presence. Trust Christ today. Tell somebody, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be rescued from that wrath and I want to walk in His love. Look to Jesus, friend, to save you. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. You were made to live not for yourselves. You were made to live for Him. And if you do decide to do that, friend, if you decide to trust in Christ, love Him, follow Him, let me show you the life that you enjoy. Let me show you the love of God that you would get to enjoy. So we've thought about the justice of God. Let's now look at the holy love of God. The holy love of God. Take a look at verse 6. Notice that first word there, for. See it there? That means because. So you, you drive these guys out. Don't intermarry with them. Don't have a covenant with them because of this. Verse 6. I'm going to read down to verse 11. For or because you are a, holy, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Note these next words. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because of the Lord, but it, but it is because the Lord loves you. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath. That he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Note the predominance of that language, by the way, in Deuteronomy. Verse 9. Know, therefore, know, therefore, the light of the fact that I chose you, that I delivered you. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And repays them and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not slack with one who hates him. He will repay him face to face, repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I am commanded, uh, that I commanded you today. All right, that word in verse 6, holy. You see that word holy? You should know what that word means. That word means holy means to be set apart. All right, that's what that word means. The Israelites were to be holy. They were to be set apart. But set apart from what? Well, set apart from the false worship and the false love of the Canaanites. And the rest of the world for that matter. But God freely chose the Israelites. The Israelites did not choose God. God freely chose the Israelites and he chose them to take down the bad and put up the good for uh, God to be glorified and them to be uh, enjoy the good of God. Take down the bad, bring up the good. And maybe most amazing of all, as we read there in verse 7, he didn't choose them because they were big or mighty. They were the fewest of all the peoples. If you read over in chapter 9, you'll see this. We even see that God knew that these people were stubborn and rebellious. <laughs> so, when you put all this together, we find that these people, these people that are uh, stubborn and rebellious and really small and really insignificant, God chose them to be his treasured possession, 
to set his love on this tiny people. God is saying, even though you are small, insignificant, stubborn, maybe even because of the fact that you are small, insignificant, uh, stubborn, and rebellious, I have chosen you to be my treasured possession in the land for all to see. Isn't it amazing that God chooses a tiny little piece of coal to be his treasured diamond forever? That's what he's like. Don't lose sight of that when we think about the destruction of the Canaanite. I don't know if you guys have thought about this before, but there's a reason why we all love the story of the underdog. We love those stories, don't we? You can think about the Star Wars stuff, right? You get a Luke Skywalker, an orphaned farm boy that takes over the evil empire and wins the whole universe. Think about the Lord of the Rings. We love those stories of Frodo, a little tiny hobbit. You know, saves Middle Earth. We can think about uh, one of my favorites. I, I realized this when I mentioned this last week. Most of you have not watched these movies. I'm, I'm getting out of my element. But like Rocky Balboa, you will watch these. They're good movies, most of them. Um, don't watch the fifth one, but the rest of them is good. Um, but Rocky Balboa, here's a guy. He's poor, Philadelphia boxer, and he defeats the heavyweight champion of the world. We love those stories. Maybe even some of you last week were watching the Jacksonville Jaguars, this tiny little team that's never won anything, take on the mighty New England Patriots. And all of you were hoping, man, hope they beat the... Unless you're a Patriots fan, all the rest of us were hoping against them, right? We love the story of the underdog. We love it. We love it. One of the Bible's favorite stories, right? What? David and Goliath. We love those stories. Think about Cinderella, right? Here's a girl who loses her family. Right? She grows up in her evil stepsisters. She's terrible. She has to sort of work and scrub the floor, all this other stuff. And yet she's the one that gets the prince in the end. We love the stories of the underdog because, guys, they echo the true story of the world. When God takes the weak, the small, the insignificant, the forgotten, the unpopular, the one that no one likes, the one that no one wants, and He chooses them to be His treasured possession. He chooses them to display His strength. He chooses them to be His uh, display of His love. And even though we're su- surprised, we shouldn't be, right? Even though we're surprised, we shouldn't be when Jesus, when we see Jesus, the Son of the living God, the One that sustains the universe, defeating the powers of sin, Satan, and death. How? By bleeding and dying on a cross. The world shows its strength by showing you its power. The Lord shows His strength by showing you weakness. The Lord set, don't you love that verb? Lord set His love on the Israelites, though they were hardly the ones that anyone would have chosen. And so it is with us. Christian, so it is with us. God loved us how? While we were yet enemies. I was thinking about this this morning. I was crossing the street, coming over, and I crossed somebody. I had my big old fat Bible, you know, like this. And I was thinking, you know, look how big that thing is. He must be a holy roller, you know. Uh, And I was thinking, but I was was thinking about this sermon because I was going, no, no, wait, no, don't, no. I'm an idiot. Like, I'm a total failure were it not for Jesus. I don't know how much we're talking about that for our neighbors, how much we need grace. I fear we all spend so much time trying to be liked in the world so that we would be loved by the world. When in Christ, we have already been loved. No matter how strong or weak we are, no matter how tall or short, how attractive or unattractive, or how smart or not so smart, doesn't matter. We have the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
God from eternity set his love on us forever. We got the best love. The one that's said to be loved is loving us. We're his son. We're his daughter. In Christ, we have all of that. And it all came by grace, nothing that we did. So why do we spend so much time trying to fit in a world or love a world that doesn't love him? We are God's treasured possession. We show the strength of God's love by our being satisfied in His love. We own all of our weakness. And by doing so, we show the greatness of our God. And so if the world thinks less of me because of my faith and obedience and following Jesus, so what? I'm a citizen of heaven. And I did nothing to deserve it. If he wants me to dig a ditch for the glory of his name, then that's what I'm going to do. No matter what may come to me, I don't need the world's approval. I already have what I need. I've been adopted into the family of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. We may be small, friends, in the eyes of the world, but Restoration Church, we are great in the eyes of God. But for those of us, or actually shouldn't say but, but in addition to that, um, we must respond to that love. By obeying Him. And that's what we see in the passage. He set His love upon them by grace for all the world to see. But there's something that we have to respond to in God's holy love. God did not choose Israel, nor did He choose us to sit up on a shelf just to sort of stay there and do nothing. He may have chosen them just as they were. He may have chosen us just as we are. But He does not intend to keep them or keep us as we are. Tends to grow us up in that holiness. And so as they came into the land, we'll see this in Judges, as they came into the land, he wanted them to do something, not just not to earn his love, but to show that they had it, to show what God is like, the one that saved him. He wanted them to come into the land and live in a particular way so as to highlight this God. So we've already talked about him uh, calling them to do one thing, namely destroy the witness of the Canaanites. But he also chose them in order to put up a good witness, to be holy, to be set apart as they lived in the land. So the way that they were seen, the way that they were seen to be holy was by who they worshipped and how they worshipped. This is how they would be seen as set apart in who they worshipped and how they worshipped. Who they worshipped and how they worshipped. That's going to show how they're set apart from the world. In other words, God wanted them to be set apart as his treasured possession in the way that they lived. In the way that they worshipped. Look down there again at verse 11. You shall therefore, in light of my love, in light of my keeping the covenant, in light of the fact that I chose you, even though you're small and insignificant, kind of jacked up, right? Verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I commanded you today. And of course, we know the heart of those commandments, right, is those ten commandments. And those ten commandments, by the way, came just before this passage in Deuteronomy 5. And so Israel would love God by being holy, by being set apart. And the way they loved God and were set apart was by obeying His commandments. And for some of you that are thinking, well, yeah, that's Old Testament religion. That's not New Testament religion. Allow me to share with you the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 15, where He says, you love me by obeying my commandments. Or John 15.10, right after that, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I see that Jesus obeys commandments. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now maybe some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Obeying commandments, love? How can that possibly go together? 
How can that possibly be the case? Well, if Moses were here, wouldn't it be great if you could ask that question to Moses? Wouldn't it be great? Well, I think if he were here, he would answer chapter 6, verse 24, which is right before this passage. Just look, it's probably on the same page. Deuteronomy 6, 24. How can judgment, or, or yeah, judgment and, and laws and obedience and like the warmth of God's love and his forgiveness. How do those two things go together? How does obey, obeying commandments actually love? Well, look at verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord, our God. Why? Say it with me, you guys. Next four words. For our good. When? Always. Right? That we might, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. For our good. Always. That he might preserve us in our lives. For our good. Always. That he might preserve us alive. As we are this day, the fear of the Lord and the obedience to his commands are not dictatorial commands from a tyrannical king. No, they are words of wisdom from a benevolent father. An adoptive father. As it says, they are the commandments, the statute. They are for our good always that we might be preserved and have life. It's exactly why, you know, when my kids are playing football and the roll the ball this has happened, rolls into Massachusetts Avenue, right? Don't go over there. I'm preserving life, right? Good for you. Don't do that. We're going to see this as we walk through judges. When, when you have no authority and you do whatever is right in your own eyes, it goes bad. And then it just goes from bad to worse. I'm just, to, just to get you guys ready, most of the time, we're, 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 we're used to, like, story gets bad, you know, and, like, at the end of the story, oh, and they live happily ever after. Like, it's the opposite in Judges. Like, as it goes, it just gets worse and worse and worse, and then it just goes in the end. God's trying to tell us something. His commandments are good. His commandments are good. God is the one that authored this world. God is the one that's saving this world. And so don't you think he might know how this world ought to go? Don't you think he might know how life is supposed to go? Guys, it is crazy to me, but there are a lot of people today that are actually buying this lie that if we can throw off the chains of this book, if we can throw off the chains of 2,000 years of Christians interpreting and applying this book, if we can just get rid of what it's saying, get rid of its commands, then, then we can live in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If we can just get rid of the teaching, the careful understanding of what the church has believed for 2,000 years, then we can really live. More and more people are, more and more of the historic understanding of Scripture is seen as an enemy of life and love and joy. And in its place, we're being told more and more to not trust this book, don't trust pastors, don't trust churches that are trying to help you walk in line with this book, or don't trust the interpretation of 2,000 years of Christians' study of this book. No, you need to follow the fancies of your own affections or follow interpretations that no one believed until recently and in the global, global church, most churches in the world still don't believe. It's just sort of a segment, a small segment in the church history where things have sort of begun to be taken down. People don't follow that counsel. Don't follow that counsel. That kind of counsel reeks of the stench of Satan. To distrust his word, distrust his commands. I'm pleading with you today, do not believe lies. 
Don't believe lies. Too many already have. Living with no king but self, disregarding God's good commands, this only leads to death, depression, and destruction. We can't just pick and choose what we want to obey, sort of explain the kind of things we don't like. This book has already figured out a long time ago that doesn't work. And God in His kindness documented it and He wrote it down for us to see. And it's called the book of Judges. Doing what is right in our own eyes doesn't work. But doing what is right in God's eyes? It's beautiful. Is it hard? Amen, right? It's hard, but it's good. It's life-giving. It's soul-giving. That's why Paul can sit in a prison and say for me to live as Christ and die as gain. The greatest life that has ever been lived on planet Earth said that God's word was a good authority. Jesus Christ. He, he did not dismiss things when they made life more inconvenient. No, he embraced them. And though he was the Messiah, he still gladly submitted to the word. Because he believed what Moses said right there, that God's commands are for our good always. They preserve life. And so, brothers and sisters, give yourselves to the study of this book. Give yourself to the study of this book that you might be set apart, that we might be set apart from the world. This is the way that we participate in the love of God. This is the way that he has ordained that we respond to the love of Christ by obeying his commands and being part of a church that humbly and lovingly teaches us and holds us accountable to those commands. That that obedience does not save us, but it certainly helps us see where there is fruit and it checks us and properly orients us. I'm going to give you one example right here from this text. One example of how when you reject the authority of God's good word and you go your own way, it goes bad. I'll give you one example. Look back in verse 3, Deuteronomy 7. You, You heard me read it earlier. It says there, you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. All right, stop right there. I'm going to give you a New Testament parallel. Parallel, You ready? 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Same idea here. Don't, he's talking about marriage there. 2 Corinthians 6. He's talking about marriage there. Same thing. Christians don't marry non-Christians. Why? Well, look back at Deuteronomy 7. Look at verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. gods. And guys, that's exactly what you're going to see is going to happen in Judges. You're going to see this happen. This is exactly what's going to happen. They're going to go kind of do this kind of half-hearted obedience thing uh, where they kind of obey, but kind of not, and it just results in utter chaos and disaster. So in the same way, people who take the name of Christ, compromise on the gospel, marry a non-Christian, or somebody that has little to no fruit in the gospel, it doesn't go well. Guys, marriage is hard enough as it is. Can I, amen, can I get an amen from the married folk in the room? Amen. Yes, thank you, Misael. He knows. Talk to him about it after service. He'd be glad to share with you all of his failures. I'll share with you plenty of mine, too, if you ask me. So, Our desire to be married, friends, cannot supersede the revelation of God's good word for the preservation of our lives. I am not that old. Right? I know this beard's making me look a little older. It's got a lot of gray in it. I'm 42 years old, but I am old enough to be some of your fathers, which blows my mind. And let me share with you just a little nugget of what I've begun to see. I've pastored now for a little over eight years, and I've seen this happen. I've watched people make just one slight deviation from the Word, from the commandments. Just one slight deviation to follow some other desire, even be a benign thing. And you fast forward a few years, 
And what you find is people are doing stuff and believing stuff that they never would have believed. Satan, we have to remember, comes as an angel of light, the Bible says. He tempts us by degrees. Just, just don't obey that command. Well, that, that's a little harsh. Don't, don't do that one. And before you know it, you're on a path you don't want to be on. God sets his love upon us that we might be a holy people. A people set apart from the world. That's what Israel was supposed to be as they came into the land. That's what he's telling them there. We're supposed, as Jesus says, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We don't set up our own little Christian communes away from it. No, in it, but not of it. Distinct. We're not like it. We have different values and those kinds of things. First Peter, again, if you think that, well, that's sort of an Old Testament thing, Nathan. First Peter 1.14. New Testament passage. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance before you were a Christian. But as he who called you is holy, set apart, you also be holy in all your conduct. And all of this done, all of this is done, guys. Why? For our good. For the preservation of life. For the glory of God and the good of his people as we give ourselves to the grace of God. But the reality is, though, right, this is hard. This is really hard to do. It's hard to live a holy life. Hard to be set apart. Hard to be in the world, not of the world. Obeying His commandments. What do we do? Briefly. Briefly. Thirdly, we trust God's grace. We trust God's grace. Take a look at verse 17. I read down to verse 22. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. There it is again. The great trials that you, your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets and hide themselves from uh, from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is in your midst. A great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. It goes on. And don't you love the fact that God agrees with the fact that it's going to be fear about you, like it's going to make you scared to go in and do this. Don't you love that God's like that? Like, I get that. I already know you're going to go in there, you're going to see an army like that, and you're going to be like this. God already knows that, and he already starts talking about it. He prepares them for it. Look back in verse 1 of chapter 7. The Lord told him, these guys are bigger and stronger than you. He already told him that. And so he's already preparing them, so when they stand up to the battle, all right, right now, they're like, woo-hoo, we're going to take the land, milk and honey, it's going to be awesome, woo-hoo. They walk in, and they go out, and then it's like, oh, man, those guys are big. The Anakim, y'all know the Anakim? Anakim, Goliath, like seven, eight foot dudes standing there. And they're going to be like, we're just, like we, manna, and like we got nothing. Like what, what are we, we going to do, right? Fear, fear, fear. And the Lord's like, don't be afraid. I understand that there's stuff to be, but don't be afraid. Why? Why, God? We ought to be afraid. Have you seen these dudes? Don't be afraid. How am I supposed to not be afraid right now, God? And God says, Remember. Remember. Remember what, God? The greatest army on planet Earth, probably. 
was barreling down on you and you had no weapons and the Red Sea was at your back and I took care of it. If I delivered you then, I'll deliver you the rest of the way. You've got to trust me. Look back at God's past grace. And then he goes on. Do you see that? How he just walks through all those other things. Remember the signs. Remember the wonders. The mighty hand. The outstretched arm. Listen, I've done this, all this stuff. I've been leading you through with pillars of fire. Just remember those things. Remember those things and trust me for future grace. Don't be afraid. Remember past grace so that you will trust me for future grace. And guys, when you slow down and think about it, isn't it sad that the story of Israel goes so badly? God had done so much for them. And they wound up giving themselves to other gods. Sort of doing some half-hearted obedience stuff. God had done everything for them, and yet they still wound up doing what was right in their own eyes. And so Restoration Church, let us learn from their mistakes. Judges is a cautionary tale. It's one of the reasons why so many people don't quote it properly. It's a cautionary tale. It wasn't meant to say, do life like this. Right? It's not trying to say, hey, yeah, go. Yeah, anyway, you'll see. Right? It's not meant to do that. It's, it's showing you when you feel and you read it and it's awful. You're supposed to be feeling awful. So that you'll go, no, no, no. Doing what is right in my eyes, having no king, no authority over me, not good. I need God. I need someone that will orient me in his commands. That's what I need. That's what he wants us to see. So we'll let us learn from their mistakes. This is such a key verse, guys. 1 Peter 1.12. This is the way I read the Old Testament. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that the words here, Deuteronomy, Judges, those words were given to us. Right? They were given to us. They were not written. You'll see in 1 Peter 1, 12, wasn't written for that generation. They were written for the church of Christ. The Old Testament written for the church of Christ that we would learn from them. And as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 12, therefore we should prepare our minds for action, setting our hope, our trust fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. God knows that a holy life is scary, that it's hard. That's why he tells us, don't be afraid. Remember, remember my past grace. Remember, I did not spare my only son, but graciously gave him up for you. How will I not also give you, graciously give you all all things? Trust me and love me by obeying me. Trust me, look back. And so, beloved, as we too are walking towards our forever land, of promise, as we too are going towards our Canaan, let us remember this, that we will be in heaven soon enough. And insofar as we give ourselves to a holy life, difficult though it is, we would all say it was the right thing to do. It was good. It was life-giving. But as we go, remember these instructions. God has freely chosen us. He set His love upon us in Christ. He set His love upon us, the church, that we would be a holy people marked off from the world. And so may we not be afraid May we remember past grace and together trust Him for future grace as we walk together to be a holy people giving hope to the world that there's a better and a right way in Christ Jesus as His holy people.